The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. We'll be reading through verse 22 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading to verse 23 this morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know we're covering this portion of God's word in two sermons. And so last week I looked with you at the middle of this passage, which is why does God teach in parables? Right? What's the point of doing that? This week we're going to look at the parable proper, as it were. But if you missed last week, uh, I think it's up online. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it and then read this passage uh, as one whole. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. The word of our God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. As soon as the princess bride begins, we know where the story is going and how it is going to end. Uh, if you've never seen The Princess Bride, you're missing out on something. I highly commend it to you. Uh, it's a romantic adventure comedy directed by Rob Reiner, and it is really funny. Um, it's also touching in many ways. At the beginning of the story, a beautiful woman named Buttercup and a farmhand named Wesley fall in love with one another. But, you know, Wesley's just a farmhand, so he goes off to foreign ways to try to earn his fortune, promising he's going to come back and the two of them are going to be together. But while he's away, news arrives that the dread pirate Roberts has attacked the ship and presumably Wesley is dead. Of course, we all know better. Uh, five years later, Buttercup is betrothed uh, to evil Prince Humperdick, even though she does not love him. And then two weeks before the wedding, Buttercup is kidnapped by three outlaws. A small Sicilian man named Vizzini, a giant named Fezzik, and a Spanish fencing master 
named Inigo Montaya, right? He's probably the most quoted person in the movie. Uh, Montoya seeks revenge against a six-fingered man for killing his father. But a masked man in black, could it be Wesley, is following them around. And, and the whole movie is about this extraordinary adventure about what's going to happen. And it really is one of the funniest movies I think I've ever seen. Uh, it's a movie full of twists and turns and a great deal of humor. But we all know how the movie is going to end. Wesley and Buttercup are going to be together. True love is going to win. Um, the movie has to end that way because the audience has expectations. That is how this sort of story works. That is how this sort of story needs to be written. But then what do we make of the fact that when God sends his own son into this world, writing a story not for the silver screen but in flesh and blood history it really shatters all of our expectations. You know, part of the beginning of the story actually satisfies our expectations. One day, the entire sky lights up at night. Frankly, it must have terrified the shepherds. And then a great heavenly host cries out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, other than the shepherds, who we don't expect in this story, Everything else is exactly what we would have expected. When Almighty God comes into history, here's what we're all expecting. Glory. But that's not how the rest of the story works. In fact, as we've been going through Matthew and we're seeing Jesus in his public ministry as an adult, one of the shocking things we've noticed is, is that the opposition to Jesus keeps growing more and more, even as people hear him teaching and see him do these astonishing miracles. Uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees, those who are supposed to know the law better than everyone else, have actually accused Jesus in be, of being in league with Beelzebul. John the Baptist is already in prison. He's about to lose his head for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Jesus has already begun to warn some of those who are attacking him, but they are right on the brink of committing a sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come and the Pharisees and the Herodians are already plotting to take away our Lord's life. What in the world is going on? I mean, that is not the way that any of us would have told the story if we were God. In fact, the idea of the Messiah being rejected by his people and brutally put to death is so contrary to the way that we naturally think that his very own disciples, who spent three years traveling around with him and hearing him and seeing him, they didn't get it all the way up to the very night he was betrayed. They just couldn't grasp the concept of a rejected and crucified Messiah. So we need to ask, what exactly is going on? Is the kingdom of God going to advance, or is it going to be an inglorious failure? This morning's parable is told by Jesus to answer that question. It's designed to give us insight so we understand what's going on in his ministry, and by extension, the ministry that he is going to carry out throughout history. Uh, we're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, Jesus wins. Second, 
How do we hear? And third, Jesus causes his people to win as well. First, Jesus wins. Second, how do we listen? And third, Jesus causes his people to win as well. Now, before we look at this passage under those headings, uh, it might be useful just to say something about parables. We're beginning a section where we're going to look at several parables uh, right on top of one another. And it does take a bit of practice to become skilled at interpreting parables. And so I want to give you just two suggestions up front. Uh, don't panic if you're having a little difficulty with interpreting them at first. That's normal. But if you work at it over the coming few weeks, and then through January, what you're going to find is you're going to become more and more skilled at grasping what God has you through this particular approach of teaching. So here are two foundational guidelines to help you get started. Um, first, one of the best things you can do to understand parables is to simply turn them over and over in your head. Uh, to move from that place where you're trying to grasp the parable to the place where the story Jesus has told is gripping you. Now, scholars don't talk about this a lot because you can't write learned papers or doctoral dissertations on j just turn the story over a lot and think about it. Uh, but that's actually the reason why Jesus gave these memorable stories, right? They're easy to remember, right? You, you don't have to memorize every word, but you could be walking down the street tomorrow and thinking about the parable of the sower. You know the story. And you're going to find that that actually is one of the most useful things that you can do and that God will make his word powerful in your lives as you do this. And second, as is always the case, we need to pay attention to context. Now, the context for us here in particular is Matthew chapter 8 through Matthew chapter 16. Although you all know that right before Matthew chapter 8, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But in Matthew chapter 8 through 16, what we discover is something that probably was surprising to the original disciples and can still be a little surprising to us as we read it. Jesus' teaching is bringing division. It, you can trace the people that are embracing Jesus, and you'll see that they're embracing him with stronger and bolder claims about who he is. And that will climax in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter declares, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But at the same time that those declarations of loyalty and understanding are growing, the declarations of opposition are growing as well. People are increasing in their hatred of Jesus, even as others are increasing in their wonder over who he is. So here's the question. How can people see the very same miracles? I mean, it's not like Jesus is doing one thing over here and those people like him and another thing over here and those people don't like him. It's people are seeing the same Jesus. How can they see the very same miracles, hear the very same teaching, and end up responding in such diametrically opposite ways. Well, in answer to that question, Jesus teaches this parable, and in particular, the first section of this parable, the first heading in which we're going to try to interpret it, Jesus wins. Three things. First, please notice that Jesus isn't surprised by this. Jesus is not surprised by the opposition. He's warned his disciples about this when he sent them out. When he told them they were going to be persecuted and rejected by family members, he warned them that this was going to be true in their life. He warned them that it was going to be true in his life. 
And now he's explaining why that's so. This might surprise us, but it is not surprising Jesus at all. Second, it is vital to see that the reason for the different types of responses is not to be found in Jesus, nor in his teaching, but in the hearts of those who are listening to him teach. Right? So Jesus is going to break down this parable, the, the different types of soil, the responses, into four different types of soil that the seed is going to be sown. Right? There, there, there's the hardened path, there's the rocky soil, um, there's the seed that falls in the midst of the thorns, and there's the seed that falls on the good soil. Now we're going to look at those uh, word pictures in just a moment. But what I want you to see right now, and it's vital for us to see, is it's the same sower and the same seed in all four cases. The difference is not to be found in Jesus, who remains the same. It is not to be found in his teaching, which remains the same. It is to be found in the human heart. Let me put that a little bit more directly. The widespread failure of Israel to embrace her Messiah cannot be laid at our Lord's feet. Right? It's not like if he had done something different, he would have had a different response. The widespread failure of Israel to embrace her Messiah cannot be laid at our Lord's feet. The problem is in the human heart. Third, it is also important to see that the shocking apathy and hostility illustrated by the first three types of soil do not mean that our Lord's earthly ministry is going to be a failure. Now keep in mind, that would not necessarily have been as obvious to them as it is to us. So let me say that again. It is important to see that the shocking apathy and hostility illustrated by the first three types of soil do not mean that our Lord's earthly ministry will mostly be a failure. Now, it's true that the very crowds that on Palm Sunday are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will abandon that commitment by the end of the week. That is true. It is true that Judas Iscariot, who spent the better part of three years with Jesus, who saw Jesus feed the 5,000, which is a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, and do astonishing healing miracles, that this, Jesus would be, uh, this Judas would betray Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. It is true that on the very night when the armed guards arrest Jesus, the other 11 of our Lord's inner circle all run for their lives. And it is true that Peter, yes, Peter the rock, will deny that he even knows Jesus out of fear of a servant girl. It's all true. But it's not the end of the story. Just 50 days after that first Easter, and a single sermon is preached at Pentecost, the living God's going to bring a harvest of 3,000 souls in a single day. And that's the Feast of first fruits, which is a down payment on things to come. That, that initial harvest is a pointer to a vast harvest, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will come out of Jesus' work, and out of his person. Well, that's fantastic news for us. The ministry of our Lord, in spite of the apathy and opposition, in spite out of the initial sense that it could look outside like it's a failure, is actually a rousing success. That's fantastic, but where do we find ourselves in the story?
Uh, isn't that one of the things that we always want to know? Where do we find ourselves in this story? Uh, I think it's actually easy for us to talk about the four types of soil, or at least the first three types of soil, in the third person. But, you know, as we're talking about them, we naturally want to think, what about us? Right? How does this help me understand my own life, my own relationship to the Lord, and how I ought to live differently? Now, we need to be really careful when we ask this question with this particular parable. Jesus is giving us this parable to explain what is happening. He does not in this parable tell us, I'm going to give you this pointed question or this pointed application that says, and therefore, this is how you should live, or therefore, this is how you should understand yourself. Uh, I think it's rightly called the parable of the sower. A lot of modern scholars have tried to retitle it the parable of the soils, but the emphasis of Jesus himself is on his own ministry. So we do need to be careful here. Furthermore, the first three categories of soil, if we absolutize them, all represent unbelief. And I trust for most of you that that doesn't represent you. Now, if it does represent you here because you're here this morning and have not committed yourself to Jesus, by all means, you do need to focus in particular on that. But, but if you absolutize them, they don't represent the vast majority of us here because they represent unbelief. Nevertheless, so I've given you those qualifications, but nevertheless, it is natural to respond to this parable by asking, how much do I see myself in each of these four categories? For one thing, we ought not to absolutize those categories. Right? Those are pictures, those are windows. Uh, it turns out that people can be in more than one of those categories at the same time. Right? Shallow soil, but being choked out by the cares of life. These, these are lenses to look into the human heart. And in fact, by God's grace, and this is a wonderful truth, people can change categories. You can be here this morning as rocky soil, and God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can take his word and break through so that you become good soil that will produce much fruit. If you are sitting here right now as rocky soil or as someone who is allowing your concern for worldly things to choke out your sensitivity to the things of God, God has some really good news for you. The Lord is able to empower his word to break through and to produce fruit, good fruit, even in someone like you. After all, that is precisely what he has done for everyone else here who's worshiping him right now. We were all once bad soil. God, by his grace has broken through and made us fruitful. So let's look at the four soils in turn and ask how much they reflect our own lives. Verses 3 and 4. Uh, Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Uh, this picture is actually really easy to grasp if you think about uh, a farm in ancient Palestine. Uh, people walked through the fields. So they didn't want to walk everywhere. You don't trample the crops. But you need to have paths where people would walk, where you might roll carts and stuff. And over time, those paths would get very hard. 
Uh, you can see in the same phenomenon, if you go, for example, to almost any American college today, or probably most high schools too, unless they're really aggressive about the keep off the grass signs, and you'll see that, that they, they designed it so there's sidewalks, but students take the shortcut. And as more students take the shortcut across the grass, eventually it gets uh, beaten down hard so that nothing at all is growing there. It's just hard dirt. And Jesus says some of the people I'm ministering to are like that. Their hearts are like that hardened path. The seed comes, it lands there, doesn't sink into their thinking at all. And the birds of the air come along and they just take it away. Now, from one sense, if you're just out in nature watching that, it can seem almost a bit idyllic. You know, these beautiful little birds, they're getting fed, they're, they're enjoying life. But Jesus says, you know, those birds, they actually represent the evil one. But this is not a nice picture. This is a picture of disaster. Why do some people not understand the word? Well, it's important for us to remember what we talked about last week. This is not an intellectual thing fundamentally. Right? It's not that they're not smart enough to grasp it. It's about the human heart. Knowledge of the Lord and knowledge of the kingdom of God are gifts. They're not our own attainment. And they are gifts that God gives to those who love and trust him. That means that the fundamental problem here is, is that fallen human beings do not love and they do not trust the living God. That is the problem. But I also think that Rico Tice, very fine um, British minister, uh, that Rico Tice is onto something here. He suggests that one of the ways that people become hardened to the gospel like this path is through self-sufficiency. And I think he's right. I mean, the issue is not that complicated. If you think you don't need to be saved, then the message of salvation just goes in one ear and out the other. Right? It's a very dangerous thing to imagine that you are not in need of Jesus Christ. I should say, if some of you are here this morning, and this describes the bent of your own heart, you are in a desperately dangerous place. The reality is, is that you, like every other person on the face of the earth, needs God to save you. And if you think you don't need that, that's one of the worst possible places that you can be. You know, when Jesus says, uh, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, he was not suggesting that there's a category of righteous people over here who don't need anything. He only came for this small minority of people over here who are wicked to save them. He's saying that I came to save those who acknowledge their need, the need that every single one of you has. And the good news is, is if you recognize your need and you cast yourself upon Jesus, then you will discover that Jesus is completely sufficient as a Savior, even for you. Now, as we've observed, those apparently sweet little birds actually represent the evil one, snatching away the word of God from the human heart, which is the seed that springs up unto eternal life. The harsh reality is, is that you have to deal with a thief every day. Uh, not a thief that's coming to steal your wallet or your car or your purse, but a thief that is coming to steal the word of God before it bears fruit in your life. That's what Jesus says. This is what Satan did in the garden with Eve, it is precisely what Satan wants to do with you. I don't want to dwell on this point, but I do want to say one thing about the work of Satan. 
It is easy for us to think that Satan is involved in the occult, in Satan worship, devil worship. It is easy for us to imagine that Satan does his work through Hamas and ISIS. And let's be honest, I mean, you know, that's quite reasonable. Satan is involved in those things. But that is not the primary way that Satan is involved in this world. Right? It's not that you have to go over there to something that you know, is labeled the devil. Satan does his best work right in the open in very respectable ways. That means that when Satan comes to you to steal the word of God out of your heart, he's much more likely to come wearing a business suit or a nice lab coat worn by a scientist or a doctor. Very respectable. In fact, um, he does his most successful work among those who don't even imagine he exists and who think that denying Jesus Christ is the respectable, intelligent thing to do. Beloved, that should be a warning for us that respectability in the eyes of the world is grossly overrated. A tremendous tragedy takes place in the lives of hundreds of millions of people. Do not let this happen to you. Hundreds of millions of people are running through life seeking respectability so that they go to their eternal damnation respectable in this world and condemned by God forever. Jesus Christ is warning you not to do that. And he's saying that you still have time right now to turn around. The second handful of seed is sown on rocky ground. Uh, look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Uh, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, now living in New England, you don't have any difficulty grasping uh, rocky soil, right? I mean, the reason why we have all these stone walls in New England is not because our forebearers loved building walls. It's because they had to get the stones out of the field in order to grow anything in them. But that's not the type of rocky soil that they had in ancient Israel or in modern Israel. It hasn't really changed that much. There are places where there are these big sheets of limestone, and they've been covered over with just an inch or so of dirt. Right? So it's not good soil with rocks mixed in. It's rock with just a little bit of soil over the top of it. And because there's rock underneath, it collects moisture. And then when the sun comes out after the seed has been planted, this is the ground that warms up first. And so the, the seeds just spring up. They are the most promising. You go, look at how beautiful they are, how fast they're growing. And Jesus is saying, you know, people do that when they hear the word of God. It just springs up and it seems like they're on fire for Jesus. When in fact they don't love me at all. Now, you have to ask yourself how that can happen. And undoubtedly, some of you are also asking, does that mean that people can embrace Jesus with enthusiasm for a little period of time and then walk away from him? Which is actually something the rest of the Bible says, no, you can't. Right? No one ever gets out of the Father's hands. So what's going on? Well, these people don't actually love Jesus, but they can get very, very excited about the message of Christianity. They, they can be excited about Christianity or young life. You know, that happens a lot. R.C. Sproul used to say that he loved how effective young life was, it, it was at reaching young people, but he was very concerned that young people were being converted to young life rather than to Jesus. People can do that in the local church. 
where for the first time in years, they suddenly feel like, I belong here, right? I now have these, these people around that I like and I get to spend time with. Now, I want to suggest, there's no way to know this, but I want to suggest that over the last 60 or 70 years in America, there have been a lot of people who have joined churches as a lifestyle choice. That is, they looked at Christianity and said, that's going to make my life better, happier, my agenda that I already had, rather than people saying, I'm going to commit myself to Jesus Christ, body and soul, come what may. Well, what happens when there's persecution? That lifestyle choice, or even just sort of that cost-benefit analysis, doesn't seem so attractive anymore. And Jesus is saying, you know, those who do that, as soon as the persecution comes, they say, oops, time to step back. And that's a warning for us in our own lives. We should remember that these people that step back and walk away from Christ, they were not, in fact, ever Christians. As the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain, but they are not all of us. Now, let's be honest, that's painful. Beloved, it should be painful for us, but it should not rock us off our own faith. When your loved ones, your friends, people that come to this church walk away, we ought to be sorrowful over that. But we should not be shocked because Jesus warned us about it in advance, precisely so that we would not be rocked off our own faith and our own commitment to following him. Sorrowful, but not shaken. Third, there is the seed that is sown among thorns. Jesus says, This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. Um, This is sort of the flip side of persecution, right? If Satan can't drive you out of the church, drive you away from Christ, he's going to try to entice you away from Christ. And the honest truth is, this is hard for us, right? Um, If you had to choose today whether you're going to endure persecution next month or endure dealing with the cares of the world, I'm going to go out on a limb and say every single one of you is going to choose the cares of the world over persecution. But it actually turns out that dealing with the cares of the world is more complicated than persecution. Persecution's hard, but it's really clear. See, part of the problem with dealing with the cares of the world, drawing us away and choking out our lives so all our emotional energy and our time and effort goes into those cares, is actually having some care for the world is good, right? You actually ought, if you're a student, to try to get good grades. Then that's the grades themselves are the most important thing, but it's your vocation to be a student. You ought to work hard at it. Uh, You ought to work hard in your jobs. Try to get ahead through hard work and thoughtfulness and creative energy and so on. God's created you for that. Um, To the degree that you can and it's not an obsession with you, you ought to be improving your own financial estate, right? Saving money for retirement and, you know, being generous all along. All those things are good. And so the problem is some care for the world is right, good, and healthy, but when it squeezes out your passion for Jesus 
or it keeps you from doing those things that put the kingdom of God first, then it harms you. And you know what else makes this so difficult to deal with? Um, it can come to you gradually, right? Just a little bit every year. I get a little bit more busy, a little more concerned about things. And you know, I often pick on the young people and say, young people, you need to listen to this. This is one for those of us who are a bit older. In particular, it's for you young people too. I want to say if you're 40 years old or older, uh, you really ought to take a look at the last 10, 15 years of your life and wonder, have the cares of the world been creeping in like thorns that are choking out your commitment to Jesus Christ? Uh, not in theory, but in practice. And, and maybe you soothe your conscience by saying, you know, when I'm not so busy in the future, I'm going to get back to reading the Bible regularly, praying more, right? I'm going to do it then. And Jesus is graciously saying, no, not then. Now, don't let the thorns choke out your spiritual life. You're called to bear fruit for Jesus today. Right? So that's a real challenge for us that we need to deal with. But thankfully, there is still one more category of soil. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Beloved, this is Jesus' plan for your life. This is Jesus' call upon your life, that you would bear much fruit. Elsewhere, Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, this brings us to the heart of the matter. Bearing fruit for the sake of the kingdom of God is not a self-help project. It's all about finding your life in Jesus and walking with him living in Christ and following him as closely as you, you can. And Jesus says, I will bear fruit through you. And the corresponding truth is important to warn ourselves because we can say, I'm going to do that over here and I'm going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God over here through my own efforts. And you know what Jesus says? Apart from me, you can do nothing. As Martin Luther reminded us, when our Lord and Savior said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he did not mean by nothing a little something. Beloved, you need to abide in Jesus Christ, and it is God's plan that in Christ you will bear fruit that will endure forever. Well, the first thing that we want to see from this parable is that in spite of the apathy and opposition that Jesus is facing, his public ministry is going to ultimately be a rousing success. Or as I quite simply put it, Jesus wins. Uh, the second thing we want to do is take these four types of soils and use them as lenses and look at our own lives and examine ourselves to see, am I pursuing Christ in a way that is going to glorify God and by which I am going to enjoy him forever? But quite briefly, there is a third main way for us to learn from this parable, and it is the grasp that Jesus causes his people to win as well. I want to give you an analogy this morning. Um, if you think through the life and death of Jesus Christ and his ministry, 
Uh, one of the things that becomes obvious to all of us is that Jesus came to conquer Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. But that's the very heart of the gospel. Jesus came to conquer Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. And so I ask you, if I were to ask you, under whose feet does Jesus crush Satan? Every single one of us would say, under Jesus' feet. Good, I mean, that, that's the right answer, right? Well, yes, it is. Jesus foundationally crushes Satan through his own life-giving death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. But that is not all the Bible tells us. When we turn to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, we read this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Whose feet? Your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now in both cases, it is God in Christ who is crushing Satan. In both cases. In the first case, it is Jesus come in the flesh to his own life-giving death and resurrection who is crushing Satan's head. But Jesus also continues to crush Satan historically and truly through his people advancing the gospel. That's you. As you go out and proclaim the greatest news that has ever been told, Jesus is crushing Satan in history as well. Therefore, the parable, this parable of the sower has important lessons for us to consider as we seek to faithfully engage in the Great Commission. First, did you notice how indiscriminately the sower scattered the seed? I'm looking out here at a bunch of white-collar workers. That may not strike you. But you know, a good, skilled farmer doesn't waste seed by throwing into the thorns or onto the solid path or into the rocks. A little bit might go there, but he's focusing the seed on the good soil where it's going to produce a crop. That's not how the parable works. Because this is not a parable teaching us how to grow wheat. This is a parable about the word of God going out and reaping a harvest onto eternal life. Now, God knows in advance who's going to fully believe and bear fruit, but we can't. You can never look at somebody who's not a Christian and say, well, that, sir, that person's never going to come to faith. Uh, you know who um, people thought that was true of in the New Testament? Saul, before he became a Christian. In fact, when Ananias is sent to him, he, he tells the Lord, he's arguing with him almost. The Lord says, go to him. And you know, Ananias is saying, Lord, not him. Right? I know how horrible he is, how he persecutes your people. And Paul will later say, that's all true. I was a blasphemer. Right? We cannot tell. And so we are called to follow the illustration in this parable of Jesus himself who sows the seed of God's word broadly to everyone. That's what we ought to do as well. Everyone you know is an object from our perspective of evangelism with whom we ought to share the gospel. Uh, my wife's not here today, so I, I, I'm going to tell on her. She, she asked me a question about this, because you know, Jesus also does say, don't throw your pearls before swine. How do you fit those things together? The gospel is actually not your pearls. Remember, the gospel is an objective declaration about who Jesus is. It is the declaration of the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death. You proclaim that to everybody. You don't open up your own heart about what that all means to you when people are going to criticize you. 
Right? And I will say also, once you present the gospel to people, if they are really hostile to you, you don't have to keep going back to them. Although if they're your loved ones, you're going to keep praying for them. Right? But we are called to follow Jesus' illustration here by sharing the gospel with everyone. Second, just as Jesus faced both opposition and apathy in his own ministry, so will we if we're serious about the Great Commission. Right? Jesus actually guarantees that to us, that we're going to have that sort of opposition and also apathy. It is right for us to sorrow over those who drift away because of opposition or because the cares of this world have taken precedence in their lives over the kingdom of God. It is right for us to be sorrowful, but we should not stumble over this reality because Jesus warns us about it in advance. Third, as we go out into the mission field as Christ's servants, we ought to sow in confident hope. Let me say that again. As you go out and share the gospel with people, this is not a, oh, this will never work. We ought to go out and tell people about Jesus in confident hope. Why do we do that? Because ultimately it's not us who's sowing the seed. Behind us and through us, Jesus Christ is sowing the seed of his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you know, when that seed falls on good soil, it's going to produce a massive crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirty. We have confidence because Jesus is sowing the seed in the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Lord promises in Isaiah 55, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my, my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Praise God. Amen.